The following talk was given at the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at sati.org. Um, welcome, everybody. I'm coming to you from Parramatta, from the land of the Paramatical people of the Darug Nation. And we acknowledge their custodianship of this land, past, present, and future. Uh, uh, and oh, I'm, I'm not sure if I mentioned this in the first uh, message, but I'm just going to mention it now just for so all of you folks in the US know what's going on here. But in uh, Australia, you may or may not know, but uh, when the uh, white folk, aka my ancestors, uh, took over the country, there was no treaty, no ceding of the land, and there wasn't even the acknowledgement that the land was formally occupied. Um, the estimates between one to three million Indigenous people were living here, uh, and they call this the doctrine of terra nullius. So this was a kind of legal fiction on which the nation of Australia was founded. Anyway, um, <clears throat> uh, there is currently a movement instigated by Australia's Indigenous peoples to have the acknowledgement of Aboriginal ownership in our constitution, and this is called the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And uh, so we are finally taking some steps to do this kind of long-awaited movement. And the people who are organising this are seeking the support of Australia's religious uh, bodies, apart from other people. So we need a broad-based consensus. Australia, we need to make a constitutional reform. You need two-thirds of the population in a referendum to make a constitutional reform. So, we, uh, so I, made a, I made the Buddhist contribution for this. Uh, we're putting together in a book, which is hopefully going to be presented to Parliament and be part of the um, uh, part of the uh, uh, sort of widespread movement for uh, the establishment of an Indigenous voice in Australia's Parliament. And so Australia's uh, been one of the representatives on behalf of the Australian Buddhist community, and so we've been very proud to support this. <clears throat> so I just thought I'd let you know that this is one of the uh, things that we're doing here in uh, Australia. Now, let us go uh, forward. This is the fi fourth and final of our sessions on the Parayana Wagga. Most of you have been with us since the beginning, so I will briefly recap. Parayana Wagga is the final chapter in the Sutta Nipata and is a collection of 16 sets of questions by Brahmins to the Buddha uh, on diverse subjects, but often concerned with quite deep matters of philosophy and meditation. Uh, and these are bookended by a narrative. The narrative, especially the introduction, was clearly written some time later. But the whole um, creates a large-scale structure, which is unusual in the Sutta Nipata. In fact, you could even consider the whole of the Parayanavagga as a single long sutta, which could even belong in the Diga Nikaya or something as a single sutta. It's, it's tightly integrated in that way. So we've read through many of the sets of questions so far, and so for today we will look at some of the remaining sets of questions and we will also look at the closing verses. Uh, and the closing verses are, to me, are very moving and some of my favourite passages in the suttas. All right, uh, and please do pop questions into the chat. If you have any questions or comments, please do put them there. And even if you just want to say uh, g'day, then uh, please do so. It's, uh, by the way, it's okay. You can say g'day like Australians are not going to be upset at cultural appropriation or something. That's, like, fine. 
Okay, very good. Now, okay, here we go. Can we see the application? Yes, or can we hear? Hang on, I've got to do the hearing thing, don't I? One second. Uh, let me just check that. I'm going to try that once more. Share application, share sound. Why do you torment me so, Zoom? Okay, here we go. Can we see and hear? We good? We have, I'll, I'll take that as, as we're good. Um, uh, and we're going to begin with chapter uh, 5.13, the uh, questions of Bhadravudha. Interesting name, Bhadravudha. Uh, literally means the uh, auspicious weapon. Not quite sure why he had that name. Anyway, I have a request for you. <clears throat> the shelter lever, the craving cutter, the imperturbable, the delight lever, the flood crosser, the freed, the formulation lever, the intelligent. So here, Abhadravuda begins with a series of epithets uh, to address the Buddha, uh, and obviously uh, a bit difficult to uh, capture these uh, um, uh, these uh, descriptions in a sort of elegant way in English. So anyway, I try to do my best. Uh, the first one is an interesting, the shelter lever or kanjahang, yeah, the one who leaves behind the oka, the house or the home. Um, that, oh, and the other one worth commenting on is the kapanjahang, which I've translated here as the formulation lever. Terrible translation. Anyone's got a better idea, please tell me. Uh, the word kappa is a tricky one to translate. We find it more characteristically in the atagawaga. But here, as we have seen a couple of times previously, there are idioms that are found fairly commonly in the atagawaga that we also find, if more rarely, here in the um, parayanawaga. And kappa means something like a formulation, a thought, a creation, an idea, a theory, an imagining, okay? So it, the basic root of it is to create or to make something. And so it refers to, it could even be like a plan, yeah? So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult term, one of these psychological terms that doesn't quite map exactly on to the terms we have in English, but often like a plan might even be a, a good one, but in, a, but in that idea that of like sort of uh, developing like fantasies, developing, uh, uh, you know, you could even say fantasy lever or something like that, someone who's left behind um, just that capacity of the mind to like build up fairy castles and to just live in this world of make-believe. Um, okay, many people have gathered from different lands wishing to hear your word, O hero. After hearing the spiritual giant, they will depart from here. So I use spiritual giant to uh, translate the uh, Naga, uh, which uh, is, where's Naga? Hang on. Tuang. Oh, it looks like I mistranslated that. Is there a naga in there? Oh, there you go. Sutwan and Nagasa, right. So after hearing the spiritual giant, they will depart from here. So naga, uh, you're familiar with the naga as the uh, as like the, the mythical serpent, like a dragon. Uh, but naga also means an elephant or an arahant or the Buddha. 
and generally has this idea of like a giant or a powerful being or powerful beast. Please, Sage, answer them clearly for you truly understand this matter. Dispel all craving for attachments, replied the Buddha, above, below, all round, between. For whatever a person grasps in the world, Mara pursues them right there. So let a mindful mendicant who understands not grasp anything in the world, observing that and clinging to attachments, these people cling to the domain of death. All right. So a somewhat curious question here, uh, but Raghudar is not doesn't seem to be really asking like a specific question, but he's encouraging the Buddha to answer the questions of others. And so it's not the particular set of questions, set of questions and answers, not exactly clear what the Buddha is answering to. Uh, but uh, in any case, the substance of his answer is clear enough. Okay, let's move on to Udaya. Okay, dying <laughs> to the meditator rid of hopes, who has completed the task, is free of defilements and who has gone beyond all things. I have come in need with a question. Tell me the liberation by enlightenment, the smashing of ignorance. So the word anya in this case is a technical term that we find in the suttas that uh, basically always means uh, enlightenment or awakening or arahantship. So this is asking for what we would call enlightenment. Remembering again that the introductory narrative begins with the question of uh, head splitting. And the Buddha responded to that with his uh, answer in terms of ignorance and knowledge. So the giving up of sensual desires, replied the Buddha, and aversions both, the dispelling of dullness and the cessation of remorse, pure equanimity and mindfulness preceded by investigation of principles. This, I declare, is liberation by enlightenment, the smashing of ignorance. All right, so here the Buddha, this is, this is the Buddha's answer here. First of all, he teaches the abandoning of the uh, five hindrances, uh, and so many of you may recognize some of the five hindrances, Kamachanda, the first of the five hindrances. Dhammanasa here appears as a synonym for Vyapada, the second one of the hindrances. So Dhammanasa often means sadness or depression, but also sometimes, as here, it means aversion. Uh, then the Tina Midha, the dispelling of dullness, and Kukucha is the um, uh, remorse. Uh, so the only one of the hindrances which is missing here is doubt. So this is a very characteristic of uh, the verses that we find that are very standard uh, doctrines that we're very familiar with from elsewhere, the five hindrances, which are taught countless times in the prose suttas. And then here in the verse, we find it somewhat reformulated, a bit loosely phrased. Right? There's uh, the terminology is a bit different. Uh, here, one of the factors is missing, but generally speaking, the idea is the same. 
then uh, it goes on. Of course, normally in the suttas, the abandoning of the hindrances is also the uh, attaining of jhana. And in a way, like the relationship between these two things is very, very close in the suttas. It's almost uh, so close as you could say that they are the same thing, but from uh, a different perspective. So the abandoning of the hindrances is like the negative perspective, what's let go, and the entering into jhana is the positive perspective of what is realized. Uh, then here, but here the Buddha goes on to speak of upekha sati sangsudhang, which is uh, almost uh, uh, identical with the normal phrase in the fourth jhana, the upekha sati parisudhang. So pure equanimity and mindfulness, a clear reference to the fourth jhana, preceded by investigation of principles. This, I declare, is liberation by enlightenment, the smashing of knowledge. So the interesting phrase here is dhammataka purejavang, preceded by uh, investigation of principles. Dhamma, phenomena, teachings, principles. Taka, thought, rationality, inquiry. So dhammataka is probably a synonym for like, Vimangsa uh, or something like that, of inquiry, investigation, and so on. Pure javang, pure beforehand, javang. It's javang is to, to run, almost like driven, right? So previous driven, driven by previous investigation of principles. In fact, maybe I should put driven in there. So the idea here is that um, uh, abandoning the hindrances. And then there's a previous reflection on the Dhamma, reflection applying the principles of the Dhamma in uh, your mind and your body, listening to the Dhamma, listening to the teachings, asking yourself, how do they apply to me? Hopefully, we're doing this right now. Hopefully, as we listen to this, we, we think of these things. What are they? Sensual desires. What are they? Aversions. What are they? Dullness. What are they? Remorse. Are these things that I'm experiencing right now? What is, what is going on in my mind as I'm hearing this? Sometimes when you hear a particular teaching, your mind might be like, ooh, I don't like that. Ooh, it makes me uncomfortable, right? That's, that's when you're getting the good stuff, right? When you hear the teachings that make you go, oh, yes, I know that. Oh, yes, yes, I knew that. Yes, well, these ones are just feeding your ego, right? These are just telling you that you already know things, right? So that's, that's, that's making your pride go up. So always be a little bit careful of those things. But if you hear something, you go, ooh, ooh, surely not. Surely not. No, that couldn't be me. Oh, that doesn't apply to me. Then that's a sign. Oh, there's some resistance there. That's interesting. What's going on with that? And so this is where we start to get interested and start to look into it and say what actually is happening with these things. So this is that investigation of principles, the Dhamma Takapure Johan. And we can do that now as we're listening to Dhamma. We can do that as we uh, go about our business during the day. We can do it during a Dhamma talk or um, uh, reading a Dhamma book or in a meditation or in conversation and so on. And so we're always looking and investigating and inquiring. Ah, okay. Yeah, that's how, that's how that's working. And you start to understand things. And like, like this whole thing about the, the meaning of the Dhamma in this case is that, is that we understand that all of these things are natural. Sensual desires is natural. Aversion is natural. Dullness and drowsiness is natural. 
restlessness and remorse and doubt. These things are all natural. They're normal. They're part of what it means to be human. So we don't, there's no call to be ashamed of them or to even like worry about them or anything. Actually, there's nothing really wrong with these things. I mean, from a Buddhist point of view, we don't really think of things in terms of like, oh, it's wrong and bad and so on. But rather you think of things as being kusala or akusala, which means that it leads towards happiness or it leads towards suffering. And so when we experience these things and you experience like a resistance to them, investigating, oh, okay, you feel that resistance. You're like, oh, okay, that's worth looking at. It's worth investigating. Why? Because that thing will lead to suffering. So don't, 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 don't be worried about it. Don't be judgmental or don't be ashamed to experience those bad things in yourself. Actually, it's good. If I see, if I see any meditator, any spiritual practitioner who's feeling angry and feeling greedy and feeling all of these things, I'm like, phew, that's a relief. And so all the ones who don't have any of those things, I start to think, oh, okay, maybe this is a bit of a worry. Because actually they're there inside. They're normal. It's all right. But just we understand, ah, let's move, let's move along past them. Okay, so the Buddha, uh, Badravuda asks, the ne- oh, sorry, Udaya, we've moved on to, ask the next questions. What fetters the world? King Susanyojano Loko. What explores it? King Sutasa Vicharana. With the giving up of what is extinguishment spoken of? Nibbana. Delight fetters the world. Thought explores it. With the giving up of craving, extinguishment is spoken of. And Udaya once more, for one living mindfully, how does consciousness cease? We've come to ask the Buddha, let us hear what you say. In a way, very simple questions, very straightforward questions, but also like he's talking at a very high level. I mean, we've already been talking at the level of the fourth jhana beforehand. You know, when the Buddha's, you know, we learned, we heard in the introduction that these are all meditators and we've seen a number of questions that suggest that they're actually, they actually are genuinely very highly attained meditators. So the Buddha is pitching his question, his answers at this high level. How does consciousness cease? So again, this is showing that, um, this is showing that these uh, Brahmins uh, or at least this Brahman is has is moving beyond or has moved beyond or understood the uh, doctrine of the Upanishads. So the Upanishadic doctrine that consciousness is infinite and eternal. They've they've heard they've heard some he's heard something from the Buddha about the cessation of consciousness, and he wants to know charato, Actually, how does this happen? How does this come about? But he's asking a pragmatic question, not a metaphysical one. Right? For one living mindfully. Not taking pleasure in feeling internally and externally. For one living mindfully, that's how consciousness ceases. Yeah. <clears throat> Comes back a little bit to what it said before about the Upeka Sati Parisuddhang, right? living pure mindfulness in deep meditation. Then... Uh, without taking any delight in feelings and living mindfulness, then consciousness comes to an end. No attachment. All right, let us move on to the question of Osala.
Your titang adisati, said Venerable Apostola, one who, the, to the one who reveals the past, who is imperturbable with doubts cut off and who has gone beyond all things, I have come in need with a question. Um. Uh, interesting opening there, Ran. One atitang adisati, one who reveals the past. Consider one who perceives the disappearance of form, who has entirely given up the body and who sees nothing at all, internally and externally. I asked the Sakyan about knowledge for them. How should one like that be guided? Again, <laughs> from zero, like zero to 100 very quickly here, he's asking a very profound question. Now, of course, how you take a question like this depends very much on the context. Uh, and in this particular case, you know, we've already had that uh, strong you know, indication that these are, in fact, meditators who are practicing these kinds of things. Um, and uh, the meaning of this phrase, the vibhuta rupa sanyisa, as a compound, it can be interpreted a number of different ways, and you'll find a number of different translators will uh, render this in different ways. But I believe the key to this is found in the Kalahavivada Sutta, which is in the Atikavaga, again, uh, certainly part of number 4.11, where there is a series of questions, including uh, the term, as we Buddha Rupa Sanyisa. So so this is what I think that it means, one who perceives the disappearance of form. In other words, somebody who has attained the formless attainments. So the four... Jhanas, or for uh, 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 normal jhanas, if you like, or for rupa jhanas, are all attained uh, with some mental residue or echo or reflection of some kind of physical property, which is usually perceived of as a light by the meditator. So when the meditator is perceiving a light, that light is a rupa. It's a part of the rupa kanda, part of the aggregate of physical form. This is one of the differences between the way that Buddhism sees things and the way that Western science sees things. In Western science, that uh, perception of a light that isn't there is considered to be entirely a, a mental phenomena, whereas in Buddhism it's considered to be actually a material thing. It's a rupa because it has material properties. This is the difference. In, the, in Western science... Things that are considered to be physical are considered to be physical because of the underlying substance. So it's a substantialist philosophy. It's made up of atoms and neutrons and protons and stuff like that. Uh, Therefore, it's material. From a Buddhist point of view, something material is something that seems material. It's something that has material properties like shape and color and position. These are all things which are, are matters of perception. So things that are perceived of as material, like a light, are regarded as being part of the rupa kanda. And so in the first four jhanas, even though you're not, uh, you're not uh, perceiving the olarika rupa, like the coarse physical form of the material realm, you're still perceiving the sukuma rupa, the subtle matter, which is the reflection of that external, external material form that's perceived in the mind. And in the fourth, uh, after the fourth jhana, going to the informless attainments, even that subtle form 
then disappears. <clears throat> uh, perceives the disappearance of form who has entirely given up the body, sabakaya pahayano. Who sees nothing at all internally and externally. I asked the Sakyan about knowledge for them. How should one be uh, uh, guided? So uh, the Buddha replies, the realized one directly knows all the planes of consciousness. And he knows this one who remains committed to that as their final goal. So the planes of consciousness, vinyana piti, uh, is elsewhere defined in terms of the different uh, realms of rebirth. So the uh, the development of consciousness uh, corresponds with the realm into which one is born. It's important to understand the distinction, though. In Buddhism, the rebirth is not produced by your level of consciousness. Okay, it's characterized by your level of consciousness, but your rebirth is produced by your karma. Always remember that it's your karma that produces the rebirth. It's whatever your intention is, whatever is your choice. That's that energy that activates the rebirth and that sends you to one or other of these planes of consciousness. Uh, so, of course, again, the difference between the Buddhist point of view and the Upanishadic point of view that these Brahmins are representing. From the, for the Buddhists, uh, all of these stations of consciousness are merely conditioned dimensions in which consciousness can abide for a while, but which, from which it will inevitably fall. Um, whereas for the Brahmins, that consciousness is the true, absolute, underlying ground of being uh, from which they came and to which they will ultimately return. Um, <clears throat> Okay, so this this last one again um, is this is this, this is a, a bit of a tricky translation. Uh, so you can read the footnote here. Uh, the last line you can see in the text here it has vimuttam, uh, whereas I think it should read uh, adhimuttam, abbreviated form of adhimuttam, uh, and adhimuttam means um, dedicated to, committed to that. Um, So the Buddha uh, uh, is, this is the Buddha talking about his ability to see uh, the consequences of different uh, spiritual paths and the outcome of different practices. And so, again, it seems that the Buddha is referring here to the kinds of Brahmanical rishis that he encountered before his practice, uh, namely Alarakalama and Udhikarama Putta, and as we've seen already, that the, the 16 Brahmins are at least associated with those, that, those Brahmin schools. Uh, and that is, this is what he's referring to, that those who remain committed to that as the final goal, that attainment of uh, desire rebirth. Understanding that desire for rebirth in the dimension of nothingness is a feta, akinchanya sambhavang nyatwa. This is, in fact, uh, almost exactly what the Bodhisattva said when he rejected his uh, teaching under Alarakalama. He said that this Dhamma uh, is no good because, or not good enough, because it leads only to rebirth in the realm of the dimension of nothingness. Directly knowing what this really means, one then sees that matter clearly. That 
is the knowledge of reality for them, the Brahman who has lived the life. So even that most refined, so this is that, this is, this is that, this is the kind of the, the, the overall thesis of, I think, of this whole collection, really, is a very kind of clear expression of it, that even that most refined of spiritual goals, still not good enough. Okay, so I'll come to your questions in a minute, but I'll just read through another couple of questions uh, before we do that, another couple of the sets of questions. Let's go on to Mogha Raja uh, 5.16. Mogha Raja being another slightly odd name means king of fools. Okay, fine. Uh, twice I have asked the Sakyan, said Venerable Mogaraja, but you haven't answered me, O seer. I've heard that the divine hermit answers when asked a third time. Interesting opening there, right? Obviously very uh, noteworthy. Yeah? And so we haven't heard from Mogaraja before this point. Uh, so clearly not, not everything that's been said has been passed down. Uh, but, the, but he asks the Buddha and the Buddha doesn't answer. Curious, right? Why is he? He's answering all of these other people. Maybe I wonder whether, I wonder whether this even relates to what we saw before with um, Badravuddha, where Badravuddha was saying, um, answer them clearly. People have come here. Please give them an answer for you truly understand this matter. Perhaps Badravuddha was really... Um, uh, subtweeting Mogaraja in that particular one. Um, not sure. That's a bit, bit of bit, bit of hypothesis. But what is clear in any case is that for some reason the Buddha didn't answer. Now the text itself doesn't tell us why, uh, but the commentary explains reasonably enough that the Buddha felt that Mogaraja was not ready to understand the answer to the question previously, uh, and so he wanted him to wait and he could hear the questions and answers from the others and then gradually learn, and then by this time he was ready to understand. <clears throat> Regarding this world, the other world, and the realm of Brahma with its gods, I'm not familiar with the view of the renowned uh, Gautama. Again, the idea of this world and the other world being uh, commonly found in the Upanishads. So I've come in need with a question to the one of excellent vision. How to look upon the world so the king of death won't see you. Gatang lokang awet kantang machuraja napasati. Yeah, very beautiful question, very powerful one. How do you see the world so that the king of death won't see you? Hmm, interesting. Look upon the world as empty, Mogharaja, ever mindful. Having uprooted the view of self, you may thus cross over death. That's how to look upon the world so the king of death won't see you. So here the Buddha teaching the famous Buddhist doctrine of emptiness. Uh, of course, we uh, find emptiness taught uh, many times in the prosutas as well. And as usual... Uh, the uh, doctrine of emptiness in the suttas, early texts, is very closely related to the idea of not-self. In fact, uh, as here, it often seems to be pretty much a synonym for not-self. Uh, it's used; it's not always used exactly in that way, um, but generally speaking, uh, the idea of emptiness in the suttas 
uh, is similar to the idea of not self. So the idea of being empty of a self. Um, <clears throat> and this, I mean, this is a, obviously the idea of emptiness went, underwent a lot of philosophical reflection and development over the years. Um, but uh, I think it's important to uh, sort of just re- keep that sort of grounded approach that when the Buddha was talking about emptiness, he was talking about it in a specific way. It's empty of a specific kind of thing. He wasn't sort of advocating some kind of abstract metaphysical principle of emptiness. Um, <clears throat> okay, so see the world as empty, ever mindful. Right. So once again, uh, the Buddha is advocating a method of reflection, of meditation. Right? And, you know, I, I find sometimes there's a kind of a dialogue in some circles in, in modern Buddhist studies where people are like, oh, yes, this whole kind of thing about meditation is this kind of Western imposition on Buddhism. And I'm like, have you read the suttas? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> It seems like it was important to the Buddha and the Buddha is talking about these kinds of things all the time. And we don't find throughout the suttas that the Buddha is telling people, you know, do lots of rituals and do lots of these kinds of things. Yeah, not to say that you can't do those things. I, you know, doing rituals and making offerings and so on is nice. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. But the thing that the Buddha was really emphasizing all the time was about knowing It's about being aware. How do you see the world? Yeah. Okay. Um, Then I'll just do the last one of the sets of questions here and then we'll go to the chat. So from Pingia. Pingia. Again, kind of an odd name, Pingia. Uh, You could translate Pingia as Pinky if you wanted. Not quite sure why he's called Pingia, but anyway. I am old, feeble, and pallid, said Venerable Pingia. My eyes unclear, my hearing faint. Don't let stupid me perish, meanwhile. Explain the teaching so that I may understand the giving up of rebirth and old age here. Mahang nasang momoho antarao. He's just come such a long way. Poor old Pingia, right? And Bhavari said that he couldn't come because he was too old, but Pingia came. I'm old, feeble, and pallid. Jinno hamasmi abalo vitavarno. Having seen those stricken by forms, replied the Buddha, negligent people afflicted by forms, therefore Pingia being diligent, give up forms so as not to be reborn. Yeah. So here the Buddha, again, using this word rupa, which has so many different uh, connotations and implications. One of the implications here, of course, being form as the body. Right? So when you get attached to the body, then it, it becomes an affliction for you. And the more you uh, get uh, obsessed with bodies, obsessed with beauty, obsessed with our outer form, then the more it comes back to bite you. Huh? because inevitably, well, that's what happens. Give up form so as not to be reborn. And uh, Bingia responds, the four quarters, the intermediate directions below and above, in these ten directions there's nothing in all the world that you've not seen, heard, thought, or cognized. 
explain explain the teachings so that I may understand the giving up of rebirth and old age here. Uh, and once again, this very common formulation, Dipang Sutang Mutang, uh, found constantly in these passages where we're finding the Brahmanical uh, teachers, the, this, the, what has been seen, what has been heard, what has been thought, and uh, thought or cogn- and vinyata is cognized. Uh, so I've probably mentioned this before, but I'll say it again just because repetition is good sometimes. But uh, muta here means thought, doesn't mean sensed, as uh, too many translators render it. Actually, this is uh, purely an Abhidhamma meaning. But in the suttas, muta uh, has a meaning of what has been thought. And the four of these things taken together, generally speaking, these are not, um, these are not sensory categories. These are not equivalent to the six senses. These are, are ways of knowing and ways of learning spiritual truths. So these are epistemological methodologies rather than being synonyms for the senses. So to dip out to what has been seen is uh, to see a spiritual teacher, to see the Buddha, to see some kind of yogi or saint, and that idea of darshana, to be uplifted because of that. This is what this means with ditta. Sutta is not just hearing something, but hearing the teachings, hearing the passing down of the oral tradition. Muta is, uh, again, not just random thoughts, but muta here means the uh, cognition and, and um, what we would call philosophy, really, to be able to, to, to rationalize about the truth of spiritual things. And cognized, again, here doesn't just mean to know any old thing, but it means to be aware of spiritual truths, especially uh, as revealed in meditation and other states of altered consciousness. Right? So the, what, um, when, he's, he, when uh, Pingya is praising the Buddha as saying there's nothing that he hasn't seen, heard, thought or cognized, he doesn't literally mean that there's like not a mote of dust on the other side of the galaxy that he hasn't been aware of. He's not uh, praising the Buddha in this kind of way, but he's talking about all of the different spiritual truths and teachings that have been passed down and that there's nothing, there's no, there's no means of knowing of these things that the Buddha is not familiar with and hasn't understood. So the Buddha continues, observing people sunk in craving tormented, mired in old age. Therefore, Pingya being diligent, give up craving so as not to be reborn. So what the Buddha is turning in a way, Pingya's uh, reflection from the beginning, he's turning it upside down. Pingya's like, well, how, how do I practice when I'm old? When I'm old, right? It's difficult to practice because if you don't have energy and and the Buddha turns it upside down and says, use this for your insight. This is how you find wisdom. You look at your own experience and you understand, oh, yeah, this is the suffering. And it's not just me who's going through that suffering, but everybody's going through that suffering. At the very least, when we can reflect in that way, it gives rise to compassion and, and a sense of connection. Oh, I'm going through a universal experience. All right. <clears throat> So I'm going to stop there and come to the chat, see if we've got any comments here. We've got a few comments in the chat. And uh, a few hi- highs from everyone, Julianne, Elizabeth, Robert, Debbie, 
Um, all looking good. Okay, so Gabriella, how's it going, uh, Gabriella, from the unceded Coast Salish Territory in Canada? Can you comment on the idea that absence of hindrances equals absorption? This is a general widespread understanding in the suttas. Okay. So if you look in the suttas, basically the way that it always presents meditation is it always says, you know, you sit down to meditate, you establish mindfulness, close your eyes, and then you abandon hindrances. And then when the hindrances are abandoned, uh, then the mind goes into jhanas. Now in the commentaries, they uh, develop this kind of more, they sort of tease out things in a lot more detail. And so they start to talk about things like Kanika Samadhi and Upachara Samadhi, which are like states, especially Upachara Samadhi is like a kind of in-between where the hindrances have been abandoned and the jhana is uh, not yet fully attained, right? Whereas in the suttas, they, they, it's more like the kind of the flip side. So commentaries. Now, look, is this is this a different teaching to what the suttas teaching about? I mean, it's a bit hard to say, honestly. I don't have strong opinions about it. I think that I think that most of those things that are talked about in the commentaries come from meditators' experiences. So I don't necessarily take them as being as authoritative as I would take the suttas. But at the same time. You know, we're listening to the voice of experience of meditators of old, you know, so don't kind of dismiss it lightly. So that, but in, in any case, the, the, the commentaries want to sort of split apart the abandoning of hindrances and the entering of jhana. Now, it's true to say that there are some um, kinds of contexts that might justify that from the suttas, right? But generally speaking, uh, the abandoning of the hindrances and the entering of the jhana are more or less the flip side of the same experience. Uh, and that is true, and that's not just true in that particular case, but that is generally true of the progress of meditation. If you look at the way that meditation and spiritual development is, is described, it's always described both as a negative thing and as a positive thing. Think about, for example, you know, even like within the jhanas. Right? So from first jhana, you abandon vitaka vichara, and then you enter second jhana. You know, from second jhana, you abandon rapture, and you enter third jhana. And so always that letting go of that negative thing is equated with the realization of the positive thing, or even say uh, the attainment of the states of enlightenment. Same thing. Becoming an arahant is, on the one hand, letting go of greed, hatred, and delusion, and on the other hand, is becoming an arahant, becoming a perfected one. So that way of talking in the suttas is very deeply embedded. It's not just like a specific technical point. You know, so don't when when we're reading the suttas. Try to avoid looking for gotchas, okay? This is, this is what sometimes people are trying to look for. They want to try and prove a point. Oh, I've got this passage. This is going to prove that I was right all along or this right, is right or wrong. So try not to read things in terms of gotchas. Try to listen to what the suttas are saying. The abandoning of these negative things and the realisation of these positive things actually are, are more or less flip sides of the same thing. Okay, so Eric asks, does cessation of consciousness refer only to Parinibbana and Sanya Vedayata Nirodha? Yeah, in this particular case, I would say it's referring to Parinibbana, to the ending of consciousness of Parinibbana. Um, you know, that's really what they're talking about, the goal of practice. The cessation of perception and feeling is a bit more of a specialised uh, kind of thing. 
uh, afflicted by forms, preserves the Pali pan of Rupanti Rupe. So, yes, this is what I'm trying to do. But, yeah, not easy. <laughs> not easy to get it. Um, does your comment about seen, heard, thought, and cognized apply to the Bahia Sutta too? It does, yes. So this is generally true uh, throughout the suttas, that whenever we see this seen, heard, and uh, thought, and cognized, that this is what it's referring to. If you want to look at the details of that, then I, I recommend uh, Jayatilaka's book, K.L. Jayatilaka's uh, Early Buddhist Theory of Knowledge. Not an easy read, uh, but I did do a course on it uh, a year or two ago, and he went into a lot of detail into this uh, and to looking at the way that these particular terms are being used. See, what happened is that these terms were inherited from an Upanishadic context, but in the Abhidhamma, which then is, you know, a few hundred years later, the Abhidhamma was very concerned about mapping certain teachings onto certain other teachings. So this thing occurs here, but how does that relate to that thing that occurs over there? Or we'll, we'll map them onto each other like this. And so sometimes, now generally speaking, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Because sometimes, you know, that helps to understand things. But sometimes that mapping happens uh, in a way that misses the nuances of what was really being talked about. <clears throat> okay, uh, Eileen says we can be aware of craving fairly easily, but does one need to be aware of states of jhana in order to abandon craving? Yeah, again, it comes back to that thing of the flip side of things, right? So again, think of that, that language that you're using there. Do you need to enter jhana, right? Like, like, do you have to? Oh, 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 God, really? Do I have to get into jhana? Oh, uh, no, no. Jhanas are just what happens when you let go of defilements. So if you don't have any hindrances, then jhanas are just a kind of a natural state of mind. Yeah. And so it's not something, it's not an, it's not an extra thing that you need to do on top of that. Yeah. Okay. So, Julianne, has this course on Abhidhamma been recorded? If not, will you do it again in one or two years? So I did the course was on Jayatilega's Early Buddhist Theory of Knowledge. Uh, I haven't actually done a course on the Abhidhamma. I did do one on the Visuddhimagga, uh, which covers a lot of these areas as well. Um, but maybe I should do one on Abhidhamma. It would probably annoy a lot of people. It would be fun. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'll think about it. I'll think about it. Yeah. I always like to try to do a challenge because, you know, if I do the same thing all the time, we always get. But was that first course recorded? Probably. Probably. Ask on our, on our uh, sort of central forum uh, and somebody there will probably be able to point you to the recording. Okay. Great. So I'm going to go back to sharing the screen again and we're going to look at the last couple of uh, sections. Excellent. Very good. So we've now heard from all of the 16 Brahmins. And it comes back to a narrative voice. This was said by the Buddha while staying in the land of the Magadans at the Pasanake shrine. When questioned by the 16 Brahman devotees, he answered their questions one by one. If you understand the meaning and the teaching of each of these questions, and practice accordingly, you may go right to the far shore of old age and death. These teachings are said to lead to the far shore, which is why the name of this exposition of the teaching is the way to the beyond. 
and then uh, resumes with some verses, again, still in the narrative voice. Ajitati Sameteya, Pornaka, and Metagu, Dhotaka, and Upasiva, Nanda, and then Hemaka, both Todeya and Kappa, and Jatukarni, the astute. Bhadravuda and Udaya and the Brahman Posala, Mogaraja the intelligent and Pingya the great hermit. Maha is he. They approach the Buddha, the hermit of consummate conduct, asking their subtle, subtle questions. They came to the most excellent Buddha. The Buddha answered their questions in accordance with truth. The sage satisfied the Brahmins with his answers to their questions. Those who were satisfied by the all-seer, the Buddha, kinsman of the sun, led the spiritual life in his presence, the one of such splendid wisdom. Varapanyasa. If you practice in accordance with each of these questions as taught by the Buddha, you'll go from the near shore to the far. Developing the supreme path, you'll go from the near shore to the far. This path is for going to the far shore. That's why it's called the way to the beyond. So these verses are recapping the main events. And uh, obviously, uh, again, obviously, once again, you know, this is a narrative framework for the 16 questions. Now, we, when we looked at the uh, Watugata, the introductory verses, it was very clear from those verses that these were, were not only later than the verses, but that they were quite late. Uh, and probably among the latest editions in the Pali Canon. Um, yet here, it's not entirely clear what the relationship is. Were these ending chapters added at the same time as the origin? There's nothing really in these that I think allows us to date them in the same way as we dated the original, sorry, the introductory verses. Uh, just having a quick look through them. It's nothing, that doesn't mean that they were earlier, but they certainly could be earlier. So it could have been the case that originally the 16 questions were sort of ended with these couple of chapters and then the introduction was added on later. Uh, or it could be that they were, the introduction and ending were composed at the same time, um, but just that the introduction sort of betrays more signs of its lateness. It's hard to say. <clears throat> Now, from the impersonal narrative voice in the previous section, then the final uh, uh, chapter or final uh, set, uh, set of verses uh, returns to a much more personal uh, verse here. I shall keep reciting the way to the beyond, said Venerable Pingya, which was taught as it was seen by the Immaculate One of vast intelligence. He is desireless, unentangled, a spiritual giant. Why? Would he speak falsely? Now, uh, so here we find, the first of all, the return of Pingya. Remember, Pingya was the last one of the 16 Brahmins who said he was very old uh, and was described in the previous verse as the Maha Isi, the great hermit. So clearly is respected, uh, uh, you know, among, among the, all of them who are respected. And he is particularly so. Now, one detail which is easy to miss in the Pali here, anugayasam. So to, to, to gayati is to sing. So in, a, in one way he's saying he's going to sing or he's going to recite the way to the beyond. Now that's interesting, right? Because what it's saying is you have here one of the characters in the events 
who is now announcing that he will take responsibility to recite these. You see, he's, he's in a way he's saying, I'm pressing the record button on these teachings to make sure that we've got them there for, for later on. Yeah? And, uh, but the, the, the prefix anu here is also significant. He's not just going to gaiety, right? he's going to anugayati to sing after, repeat in verse. The anu here has an implication of to keep on, right? to keep on reciting. In other words, he is going to establish the oral tradition of reciting these verses so that they can continue to be remembered throughout time. And so this is very, very unique uh, and very interesting uh, little detail here. Uh, uh, and so you're almost like you're recording the the moment when it was decided that these would be uh, uh, retained as a set of scriptures. Come, and uh, Pingia continues, come, let me extol in sweet words of praise the one who's given up stains and delusions, conceit and contempt. The Buddha, all seer. Dispeller of darkness has gone to world's end beyond all rebirths. He is free of defilements and has given up all pain. The rightly named one, Brahman, is revered by me. So first of all, notice that in so far in these verses, we haven't had any context. We don't know where, we know who's speaking, it's Pingya. We don't know where he's speaking. We don't know who to whom he is speaking, except that now he's addressing a Brahman. So he's talking to, uh, not particularly surprising perhaps, since he was a Brahmin with a bunch of Brahmins, but who is the Brahmin that he is actually addressing? We don't know yet. Like a bird that flees a little copse to roost in a forest abounding in fruit, I've left the nearsighted behind like a swan come to a great river. Beautiful image there, yeah? Bird that flees a little copse to to roost in a forest abounding in fruit. To those who explained to me previously, before I encountered the Buddha's, before I encountered Gautama's teaching, said, Thus it was, or so it shall be, or that was just the testament of hearsay, or that just fostered speculation. And we've seen actually similar um, complaints in some of the questions previously. The testament of hearsay, itihitihang. So itihitihang. Uh, you know, referring to passing down of an oral tradition, but perhaps more specifically uh, referring also to legendary tales and perhaps even more specifically still uh, referring to the stories that we know today as the Mahabharata and Ramayana. I mean, that is, that's a speculative association, but I think that that's the kind of thing that is being referred to. Also, fun fact uh, the earliest recorded versions of many of the primary events in the Ramayana and Mahabharata are in the Pali Jataka stories, which are earlier than any of the Hindu versions of those events. <clears throat> okay. Um, uh, we're going positive. Okay. Alone, the dispeller of darkness is splendid, a beacon, Gotama, vast. In wisdom, Gotama, vast in intelligence. Gotama, bhuri panyano, Gotama, bhuri medaso. He is the one who taught me Dhamma, visible in this very life, immediately effective, the untroubled, the end of craving, to which there is no compare. 
Yasanati Upamakwati. So then uh, the Brahman to whom uh, Pingya uh, is speaking responds, why would you dwell apart from him even for an hour, Pingya? From Gotama, vast in intelligence, from Gotama, vast, sorry, vast in wisdom, from Gotama, vast in intelligence. He is the one who taught you Dhamma, visible in this very life, immediately effective, the untroubled, the end of craving, to which there is no compare. So again, it's not specifically identified here, but it's likely that this is Bhavari that is being referred to here. So the Pingya's teacher, uh, and according to the commentary, uh, that is the case. Pingya replies again, I never dwell apart from him, not even for an hour, Brahma, from Gotama vast in wisdom, from Gotama vast in intelligence. He is the one who taught me Dhamma, visible in this very life, immediately effective, the untroubled, the end of craving to which there is no compare. Being diligent, I see him in my mind's eye, day and night. I spend the night in homage to him. Hence, I think I dwell with him. Beautiful uh, lines there, That, that, that sense of devotion. And I never dwell apart from the Buddha. I see him in my mind's eye, day and night. I spend the night in homage to him. Hence, I think I dwell with him. My faith and joy and intent and mindfulness never stray from Gotama's teaching. I bow to whatever direction the one of vast wisdom heads. I'm old and feeble, so my body cannot go there. But I always travel in my thoughts, for my mind, Brahman, is bound to him. Lying floundering in the mud, I drifted from island to island. Then I saw the Buddha, the undefiled one, who has crossed the flood. And once again, we see Pingya echoing imagery and ideas that we've heard uh, throughout the 16 questions. Now, then is a, uh, another intervention from another unnamed uh, speaker, but this unnamed speaker, it seems, is meant to be the Buddha. Bit unclear here, but I think this is meant to be the Buddha. Just as Vakali was committed to faith, but Ravuda and Gotama of Alavi too, so you too should commit to faith. You will go, Pingya, beyond the domain of death. Uh, so the phrase here to commit to faith, the Mutta Sadho or here Pamunchasu Sadhang. And this is the same as the phrase which is. Uh, spoken by Brahma after the Buddha was enlightened uh, and Pamunchantu uh, Sadhang, that people may commit to faith. Uh, the Buddha spoke of people who pursued um, not really different paths, but he people who pursue the path with uh, uh, with with different faculties foremost. So for some people, uh, devotional faculty is a foremost one. For others, it might be wisdom and investigation. So Pingya, because of his very strong devotion, his very strong sense of a personal connection and love to the Buddha, is being encouraged by the Buddha in this to find liberation with faith as foremost. And I think this is a really... I find this really beautiful and I think it's a very good thing to remember as well. The Buddha did not, you know, the Buddha was not 
critical of people who are very devotional or people who had different emphases and practices, as long as their path is leading them in a positive direction, he would encourage them to practice in that way that is going to be suitable and nourishing for them. And so this is always, in the Buddhist tradition, this is regarded as one of the special qualities of the Buddha, that other disciples will tend to encourage students to practice in the way that they have practiced and to find that nourishment through the things in which they have found nourishment, whereas the Buddha had a higher vantage point and was be able to teach in a more diverse way to respect where each individual is coming from. And so this, I think, is something which is really important to bear in mind because, obviously, there are many different approaches to the Dhamma and there are many different personalities and the things that inspire me do not inspire somebody else and the things that inspire them do not inspire me and that's okay as long as we are continuing to practice. My confidence grew when I heard the word of the sage. Again, we're back to Pingya. The Buddha with veil drawn back, so kind and eloquent. Having directly known all about the gods, he understands all top to bottom. The teacher who settles all questions for those who admit their doubts. Unfaltering, unshakable, that to which there is no compare. For sure, I will go there. I have no doubt of that. Remember me as one as whose mind is made up. So these are the final words in the Sutta Nipata. I love this verse. Right? I love that just the just that confidence in it. He just he just comes out and says, I'm, I just don't care anymore. I, I love that. I just don't care. I just I'm not gonna I, 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 whatever happens, I'm going there. Uh, I'm gonna get there. My mind is made up. So when I when I did my translation project for the suttas, uh, I deliberately left the Suttanipata to the last book that I would translate because I knew that this would be the last verse in the last book that I was going to translate. So I had something to look forward to, to translating my, fam- my favourite verse and give me that inspiration. So that made me really happy when I finally got there. All right, so this is the Parayana Wagga and the ending of it. And, uh, you know, well, what a what a journey that those 16 Brahmins went on and, you know, what they endured and that that deep sense of questioning that they brought to their own tradition, right, that they, they and their, their depth of dedication to their meditation and spiritual practice, but also the humility that they brought to see the Buddha and to listen and to practice his teachings. And the way that the whole chapter uh, is sort of wrapped up and included in this narrative, a little bit, yes, a little bit sort of clunky with the different time periods and things like that. Okay, we can understand there's a bit of editorial process there. But still, I think that in this case, that narrative gives like a human context uh, that makes the whole thing more relatable and more engaging. So this is the... 
Um, and he's already given it a title. Julian commenting on, on what Pingy said at the beginning. Yes, you're quite right. So, so he's not only determining to keep on reciting them, but he's also titled them. Yes. Um, uh, uh, so question from uh, Elizabeth. Uh, why uh, have these 16 questions and answers not been included in the four Nikai's? Yeah, good question. I don't, I don't think there's really an answer for that. Uh, it would have been nice. I mean, it would have been nice if they had been included, especially in the Agamas in Chinese, then we would have parallels for them. Uh, but as it stands, we don't have parallels for most of them. Um, yeah, one again, one of these mysteries. Yeah, hard to say. Yeah. Anyway, it's a good life. It's good. It's good that there's some mysteries in life, right? Otherwise, I mean, what are people going to write their PhDs about? Right? So, uh, Rob, I think I think that's uh, I think that's about it. I think we're finished for today.